A reading from the prophet Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why then do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sin and you were trying to teach us, and they drove him out. Jesus heard that he had been driven out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come into your presence this morning to worship you and at this point to sit with your scriptures 
uh, and to listen to your voice. We acknowledge that we are coming from all kinds of different circumstances this week, all kinds of different experiences. For some of us, we feel like we have been drowning. Uh, We have been crying out, and we wonder if you hear. For others, we feel like we've been floating along just fine, perhaps not paying attention, uh, but wondering what kind of storm is just around the corner. Some of us are asleep, some of us are awake, some of us have experienced joy, others bitter pain, and we ask that in the midst of us all, that you would meet us, that you would embrace us, that we would hear your loving voice and be renewed in your presence, that we may look upon our joy and our sorrow in faith and hope and love through Christ our Lord. So would you meet us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. G.K. Chesterton once famously said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Why? Why is that true? It's because the hope that lies at the heart of Christianity in its authentic form, it just doesn't work very well as a so-called opiate of the masses, to borrow Marx's phrase, right? The cross of Christ makes a terrible crutch. It is the last thing you want to lean on. The hope we find in Jesus, unlike every other version of hope that is offered in this world, is not about how to escape suffering and death. Rather, the Christian hope is about death not being the end of the story for the world, for you, for me, and first and foremost for Jesus, the first fruits of that harvest. The Christian hope is a resurrection hope because our hope is in our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus. And this death and resurrection hope really is the pulsing heart that drives our death and resurrection way of life in communion with Christ, who calls us, as Jesus says, to take up our cross and follow him, surrendering ourselves into the hands of God, moving toward others in self-sacrifice, and embracing this mysterious paradox that it is only those who give their life away who truly find it themselves and who truly share it with the world. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult and not tried. Because we are reluctant worshipers, aren't we? We're reluctant disciples of Jesus who are always struggling to release that white-knuckled grip on the reins of our lives, right? We're always reluctant to open our hands and offer up our dreams and our habits, our control, our escape strategies, our wounds, our secrets, our understanding, our plans for the future. But of course, it is that very reluctance that's so often the reason we don't experience more of the good stuff, isn't it? more of the joy, more of the beauty, and more of the peace that God offers us because it is our reluctance that keeps us from experiencing life with God himself. Chris Hertz describes following Jesus as embracing a lifelong series of minor deaths. 
and he laments our reluctance to enter in as he writes, small deaths are painful. They seem overwhelming. Most of us are just too scared to face them. And as he's talking about this, he offers this provocative quote from the German poet and playwright, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. And he, he says, as long as you do not have experience of this dying and becoming, you are only a troubled guest on the dark earth. You are only a troubled guest on this dark earth. This is who we are. Reluctant worshipers who live as troubled guests on this dark earth because we resist the life and hope that God extends to us. We resist the dying and becoming in fellowship with Jesus because it's hard. And so we leave it untried. So before we jump into Jonah, just think about your own life for a minute. How do you experience life as a troubled guest in the dark earth? Where are you restless? Where are you distressed? Where do you sense that something really important is missing? Or is out of place? Or there's something really important, maybe a relationship, that you, you feel stuck in and you don't know how to move forward. You don't feel like you're at home in the earth or in your body or in your community or in your relationships. Where in your life are you experiencing the inhospitality of this dark earth more than the security and peace of God's presence and power and loving embrace? Just hold these things in your mind and in your heart as we turn to the story of Jonah. Because in Jonah, I think we find a friend. And he's a friend who really takes the prize for reluctant worshiper most self-condemned to live as stranger in the earth. Um, he's, he's ridiculous. He really is. He's ridiculous. Uh, and, and perhaps because he's so ridiculous, Jonah, I think he just might be that kind of caricature uh, of our own reluctance. Like one of those curvy mirrors that sort of exaggerates our features in a way that makes us see them anew. Jonah might just be the kind of caricature we need to recognize some of the more subtle features of our own reluctance. Some of the ways in which we withhold ourselves from God and thereby withhold ourselves from life and joy and peace. The things we want to enjoy and the things we know we need and want to share with other people. The things that God extends to us in Christ, but we resist because the way into them is just too hard. Specifically today, as we look at Jonah chapter 2, I want to consider Jonah's experiences of both inescapable death and inexplicable deliverance as the context of his reluctant worship. And so as we get into this, I want us to quickly just remember where we are in the story. So remember, if you're just jumping in, um, Jonah, as we read in chapter 1, he's this this prophet figure that God has called to go to Nineveh, which is like the worst place anyone could be called to go. It's the capital city of the enemy country that's the most evil of the evil of the evil. And so Jonah, somewhat understandably, says, no way, I don't want to go there. And so he runs the other way. He's called to go like to the Middle East, and he runs towards Spain. Um, and so you get this story that unfolds of Jonah running away from God and trying to avoid God. And as, as Tuck has, has talked about it the last two weeks, it's, 
It's this almost comic book-like story. It's this like painted with these big, broad strokes of bold everywhere. And it's like this loud, in-your-face, blocky sort of animated tale uh, that's larger than life. And it's a ridiculous hero at the center of it who's really not much of a hero, sort of an anti-hero. And it feels like one of those things that would be appropriately uh, accompanied by, you know, the canned laughter, you know, the laugh track. I don't know about you, but I've found that I can't watch sitcoms anymore because they're just offensive to my eyes and ears. Like, I've been broken by the shows that come on AMC and other HBO, these other, you know, Netflix original series where you've got a bigger, you've got a lot more freedom to what you can do and you get to do all these extended episodes. And so the 30-minute sitcom, as I try to, like, re-enter that world and watch those, it's like... No one wears colors like that. No one talks like that. Nothing looks like this or sounds like this. And it, it just feels, it feels ridiculously artificial. Jonah in some way feels like it's this bizarre, sitcomish, comic bookish, larger than life, unreal sort of story that ought to be accompanied by like a laugh track, you know, and the Debbie Downer sound effects, you know, wah, wah. It just, it feels like it's prone to that. And so Jonah is running away from God, who he describes as the maker of heaven and earth. The God who owns everything and is everywhere. Where there's no possible way to get out from his presence. Jonah runs from him which is so obviously foolish. And then he's on this boat with the sailors, and so he goes down, down, down away from the Lord, right? Down to Joppa, down away, down away, down into the hull of the ship. It's this descending movement of, of Jonah. And he's going down away from the presence of the Lord until these pagan sailors finally bring him up and offer him as a sacrifice and throw him overboard uh, when, when God brings a storm and the storm is quieted. And then God sends a big fish to eat him up. And that's where we jump in. So God sends this big fish to swallow Jonah, and he's in there for three days and three nights. And the passage that we have in chapter 2 that we just read is Jonah crying out to God from within the belly of a great big fish. And what I want us to consider first as we look at this section of text is that this is Jonah's description of his own descent into death inescapable death. In verse 2, you see Jonah referring to the belly of the fish as the belly of Sheol. Well, Sheol is the realm of the dead in the Jewish worldview of the time. It's, it's where the dead were thought to live, and it was understood to be a physical place like the basement of the earth. And so Jonah in the belly of the fish is understanding himself to be in the belly of death, the belly of the grave. And if you look at verse 3, he's hurled into this, to what's the deep, right? This sort of theologically loaded way of talking about the sea. But he's at the, he's at the surface of it in verse 3, where the currents are swirling and the waves are breaking. And then in verse 5, you see he's sinking down into the waters that engulf him, where seaweed is beginning to wrap around him. And then in verse 6, he's sinking down to where the roots of the mountains are, the foundations of the earth. And then eventually to where the iron bars of the gates of death are that close in upon him, the gates of Sheol, the door of the pit that everybody knows is a one-way kind of entrance with no exit. It's this picture of finality. It's a picture of utter darkness and Jonah essentially leaving the plane of the created world 
He leaves the, the, the sphere of existence. And so the deep, this language that he uses here, this is language that appears in the stories of both creation and redemption, where in Genesis, you know, the darkness is on the face of the deep, this chaotic, pre-created moment, and the spirit hovers on the face of the waters, brooding as God's going to do his creative work to take away the deep, move it aside, and bring forth dry land and life. And it's the same kind of language that appears in the story of redemption in Exodus where God makes the water to stand up on its sides and make dry land appear and his people cross over on it and then he brings the waters crashing back down on the chariots of Egypt that are described as being hurled into the deep, sinking into the deep waters. It's this theologically loaded way of thinking about death and judgment and finality. And that's the way Jonah's describing his own journey in the belly of the fish. That's where he is. It's a very dark place. Even the seaweed wrapped around his head is like this funny play on words in Hebrew where it can be read as either weeds or destruction. What is it wrapped around his head? It's both. And what's really interesting about this story is that this is the moment Jonah chooses to cry out to God. This moment. That's also ridiculous. If you think about all of the moments that he's had, why in the world would he wait till now? By anyone's measure, this is what you'd call too little, too late. If you look at verse 4, which is like the focal point of the passage, it emphasizes Jonah has passed the point of no return. And so his reluctance all through the story is just maddening. As you think about his resistance to God, as someone who believes the kinds of things he would say in this prayer, why would he run? Why would he let it go this long? Why wasn't the storm enough to wake him up? If he's going to wake up in the fish, why wouldn't he wake up before he passed the point of no return where there's no possible way out? This is Jonah, the ridiculous anti-hero of our story. Can you identify with him at all? The reluctant worshiper, the one who waits and waits and waits, the one who receives so many opportunities, so much mercy upon mercy, but it's never just quite enough to wake him up. It's never quite enough to stir him to a life of embracing God, of a life of turning around. Can you see yourself in Jonah? Because if you can, that's when Jonah begin, he begins to become something of a friend to us, I think. Can you identify with his experience of darkness? Jonah feels incredibly stuck. He is. He's in a big fish at the pit of death. So he feels incredibly stuck. He's looking around at his situation, and he's, just, he's saying, it is utterly hopeless where I am. I have, I have no way out. And can you identify with his hesitation, his reluctance, and then can you identify with his tiny little bit of turning to the Lord? This is way too little too late. There's no doubt. Like if you look at this story, there's so much about it that's just so frustrating. Jonah is crying out way too late and he's crying out in a really unsatisfying matter. But it doesn't matter because deliverance belongs to the Lord. Look at Jonah's experience of inexplicable deliverance. 
first of all, it is utterly undeserved, right? Jonah, he's done nothing right so far, essentially. I mean, the, the closest he's done to right is admit to the sailors that he's run away, that there's something that's, that's attached to him that's causing all this trouble that allows them to throw him overboard and, and they can you know, be saved from the storm. He doesn't do really anything good. All he's done is run away. All he's done is make matters worse. Yet here he is, the recipient of God's grace and deliverance. All he does in verse 4, this moment of turning, is he looks to the Lord it's the same phrase used in that story from the book of Numbers, if you remember, where, where Moses and the people are there and, they, and a bunch of people get bitten by snakes. And so they're all going to die of this snake venom. But Moses has this bronze serpent that he holds up and it says, if anyone looks to the bronze serpent, they will be saved. And those who look are saved. It's this tiny little gesture. It's this tiny little thing, but it's a turning toward. A turning toward. And that's the important piece that's here. It's undeserved. It's also unexpected. A giant fish swallowing you up, not expected. This being vomited up <laughs> out of the fish's mouth, this picture of resurrection from the dead, this is what no one expects to happen. This isn't how deliverance comes. Deliverance is about escaping suffering and death, right? Not for Jonah. For Jonah, deliverance comes on the other side of having descended to the depths of the grave. And God provides a big fish that ultimately spits him out. The salvation that Jonah is so afraid God might actually extend to these undeserving Ninevites. God here extends to undeserving Jonah. And at that moment, when Jonah's the recipient, he's really glad to say, deliverance belongs to the Lord. <laughs> when he's the one being delivered. Though he's not even going to be able to snarl those words through gritted teeth when the Lord is potentially going to deliver the Ninevites, the enemy. Jonah's deliverance is inexplicable. It's undeserved. It's unexpected. And it's something he doesn't even desire for his enemies because it feels unjust. It's so gracious. And it's this twin, twin experience, I think, of inescapable death and inexplicable deliverance that makes Jonah's reluctant worship all the more interesting and all the more problematic as we think about how he relates to us. Look at verses 2 through 6 for a moment. This, this structure here in these verses is what um, is called a chiasm. It's a shape in Hebrew literature that looks sort of like an hourglass. And basically what happens is you've got parallel verses that sort of mirror one another down to a focal point at the very middle. And the middle is the point that's being made. And so in this hourglass shape, verses 3 and 5, uh, um, or verses 2 and 6 rather, are this they're parallel where the Lord, you know, Jonah calls to the Lord from the depths of the grave and his life is brought up from the pit. And then in verses 3 and 5, we get these verses about the deep. And they, they bring our focus into verse 4, which is the focal point, which is Jonah lamenting his banishment from the presence of the Lord. His banishment from God's sight. And his desire to look again to the Lord. Banishment and looking again. Now, if you remember the story, this is part of what makes Jonah's prayer here is somewhat unsatisfying. Was Jonah banished from the presence of the Lord? 
the dude ran away, like a lot, persistently. Um, but it's the moment that he's tossed overboard where there's no possible way to go back that Jonah realizes he is banished. He doesn't recognize his own culpability and his banishment as much as we like, at least not vocally, but it's this moment of crossing a threshold that he's entered the point of no return, and it's this moment where he goes, how will I look again upon the temple of the Lord? This desire to turn. Some translations say, yet I will look again, more of like a a, a commitment to do it. This is this confession of faith. It's this turning moment, and it's really altogether unsatisfying because Jonah here, what we get is this kind of psalm of thanksgiving, which if you read through the psalms of thanksgiving, one of the most important pieces about them is that almost all of them are based on the presumption of the innocent sufferer who's suffering unjustly, and then God comes and delivers, and then the prayer comes forth saying, God, you are just, and you delivered me from the hand of my oppressors on and on and on. Jonah enters that kind of genre for this prayer, and you go, wait a minute. You're not an unjust sufferer. These are self-inflicted wounds. Where's the confession of sin? This is worse than tone deaf. This is like one of those public apologies that's not an apology. One of those public apologies that references more and more how the people you've wounded admire you more than how you've wounded them. It's presumptuous. And then Jonah goes on to troll these idol worshipers. But who is he talking about? In verse, you know, if you look at verses 7 to 10, he goes on to talk about you know, the idol worshipers. They do this in vain. It's like, but who is he talking about? The only idol worshipers we've met so far in the whole story, presumably, are these sailors who come from the pagan nations with their false gods. But their faith is more operative, active, and commendable than Jonah's in the story. They're the ones who turn to the living God once they figure out what's going on. So there's a lot lacking in Jonah's confession here. And there's a tension between what he says in his mouth in this moment and the character that he is all throughout the story. And commentators have spilled a lot of ink on how to reconcile those two things. But I think the best readings of the text, as far as I can tell, are the ones that recognize that the tension is actually where a lot of the good stuff is for us. Jonah is a reluctant worshiper. He isn't who he ought to be. Yet he's a recipient of the Lord's deliverance. He's someone who turns to the Lord. He's a complicated person who lives inconsistently. Can you see yourself in Jonah? Can you see yourself in Jonah? Do you see in his journey anything of your own? The call of the Lord and the running away. The provision of the Lord and the resistance. The opportunities to awaken and the hesitation to do so. The stubbornness, the grace, the complicated nature of a life of faith and the persistent sinfulness, selfishness, self-absorbedness. All of Jonah's pronouns are like first person. He's, he's like obsessed with himself in this prayer. Just like us. When Jesus says to his disciples, um, when he's talking to them about what's coming in his death and resurrection, he says that the sign of Jonah 
is something they should look to to understand what it is that he's up to. This Jonah who was in the belly of death for three days and three nights, we're supposed to read as parallel to Jesus who was in the belly of the tomb and in the belly of death and on the third day was raised. God brought them back from the land of the dead to the land of the living. And and as we think about what it is about Jonah that helps us see Jesus more clearly, I think it's just this, that in both cases, what should have been a place of death, by anyone's measure, what should have been a place of death becomes a place of life and deliverance. The big fish, the belly of the fish is a grave, but it becomes his salvation. The cross is an instrument of Roman execution, yet it becomes the very place where we find life. This is the mystery of the sign of Jonah that Jesus holds up before us. And what makes resurrection deliverance so mysterious and difficult and incredibly powerful is that this kind of resurrection deliverance, the kind that doesn't offer us a way out from suffering and death, but through it and beyond it to something more, what makes it so powerful is that it is the only kind of deliverance that lasts It's the only kind of deliverance that doesn't shipwreck upon the realities of our own suffering and tragedy. Which is why we don't want it at first. What do we want? What do you want? What do I want? I want to avoid pain. That's what I want. I want to avoid pain and death, not only because that's what I'm hardwired to do, fight or flight, right? what your lizard brain tells you every second of every day, right? Avoid pain, avoid death. This is what you're hardwired to do. We want, we want a cheap and easy escape that brings relief at very little cost. But the thing is, when you start to look at those various kinds of deliverance, those various kinds of hope, those escape hatches that we try to tap into, what we find is that they actually don't provide that which we crave. They don't last. They wear off. And they can't answer the biggest problem we have, which is none of them can answer the problem of the grave. But the hope that we have in Christ is a different kind of hope. It's a resurrection kind of hope that looks upon the grave not as the end of the story, but as actually this waypoint into that which God is doing. Jonah has to undergo this death and resurrection transformation in order to become God's instrument of deliverance for this sinful and undeserving people. Why? Because he went AWOL. He's a prophet. He's a runaway prophet who's bailed on a job that God isn't willing to bail on. And so what does God do? He goes to find Jonah. Now, It seems plausible enough to me, and maybe to you, that God could have just gone with plan B here, right? Jonah ran away. Let the sea have him. I'll get another prophet. I mean, how indispensable is Jonah, really? He's not even very good at his job, right? But God sticks with plan A. He chose Jonah for this job, and he's going to do what it takes to see this through. And what I love about this story is that this is the story of humanity in a nutshell right there. 
God creates humanity in his image to be the instrument of blessing in the world, the instrument by which God would bring forth life and take care of his creation. That's our job. But if you read the story at the beginning of the Bible, what happens? Humanity goes AWOL. We run away. We become runaways and hiders, and we abdicate the throne, the position that we're given. And just when you think God may as well scrap the whole thing and say, fine, they blew it, start over, wipe it out. Flood the earth, leave no one behind, start over. God says, no, I'm sticking with plan A. I'm not giving up on the creation I love. I'm not giving up on the humanity that I love, even though they've fallen into ruin. I'm going to go find them. Which is why it's no mystery that the story of redemption begins with God asking a simple question of people. Where are you? Where are you? As he walks in the garden, he seeks the man and the woman, and he asks, where are you? Why? Because the whole story of the Bible is one of God saying, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not scrapping my plan, and I'm not scrapping you. I'm going to go find my people, and I'm going to make them new. Not only for their own sake, but for the sake of the world I've called them to serve and steward. I'm going to call my people back to myself. I'm going to put my spirit in them. I'm going to write my law of love on their hearts. And I'm going to unleash them into the world to be the witnesses on the earth whose words and deeds testify to the reality that, behold, I am making all things new. That's God's plan A. And of course, the story of Jesus is what unfolds when God takes that to himself to bring to fullness. And what we see in Jesus is that the way God is going to see this out, the way he's going to make it happen, is that in Jesus, God comes all the way down. He descends, and he descends deeper and deeper and deeper, not only into the shadowy places where we have descended already, the scattered and sinful and broken hideouts where we all run as we go AWOL in our own way. But he also descends into the utter darkness toward which we are all descending. The finish line, the inevitable consequence of life away from God, the belly of the grave at the bottom of the deep. But the story doesn't end there. Resurrection. A big fish vomiting out a resurrected prophet, an empty tomb spewing out a resurrected savior. The reason Jesus has to undergo a death and resurrection transformation isn't because of his own need, right? He's not a runaway prophet. It has everything to do with ours. We are the broken instrument of God's renewal that has gone AWOL. And so we are the ones who need to be made new by a death and resurrection journey. And Jesus comes to bind himself to us, to go there first, to be the pioneer and the perfecter of that. So that with him we die, with him we rise, and with him we live anew. Inescapable death and inexplicable grace are the context of your reluctant worship too. And they're the context of my reluctant worship too. 
And what we see in the ridiculous caricature of Jonah is this frustrating character who's stuck in his own tantrum like a toddler who you're just looking at, like, why do you make it so hard? That was my morning. (laughs) That's you. And that's me. And the God of inexplicable deliverance is the one to whom salvation belongs. And he looks upon your tantrum. He looks upon your reluctance. He looks upon your running away. He looks upon your hiding. He sees you, and he loves you, and he calls you home. And the question for you and me in this moment as we look upon Jesus and we live in the world with this God Will we resist and continue to live as troubled guests in the dark earth? Or will we turn and look upon him who looks upon you? Embrace the one who has embraced you and begin the journey home. The journey toward the God who made us, who loves us, who's renewed us, and the God who's given us a job to do in the earth, to be his instruments of renewal and redemption in the world. This is the call of Christ. May God give us grace that we would turn to him. Let's pray. Our God, we need your help. There is no question about that. We are reluctant worshipers at best. We are stubborn runaways, and so we ask even this morning, would you come find us and meet us right where we are? Would you help us to cry out to you rather than to just cry out into the air? Would you help us to turn toward you and to look to you? Would you help us to see those you've called us to love? Would you help us to recognize and repent of the ways we run away from you? And would you help us to know more personally and more powerfully the depth and the height of your dying and rising love for us. Make us new, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen.